I've been truly blessed. What do you think of when someone says that? I've been truly blessed. What kind of life or situation do you suppose they might be trying to convey? I've been truly blessed. I think people often speak of being blessed when they, when they can look back or when they can look around and they can draw up a list of all kinds of circumstances and situations which are what they would classify as pleasant, favourable. A successful career, a long and happy marriage, a loving extended family across many generations, opportunity they've had for travel, memorable holidays, the house they'd always hoped for, and so forth. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Many of those things are very good. If the Lord does bless you with such things, well, they ought to be the subject of much thankfulness to God. And they can indeed be considered as God's gracious blessing. The problems occur when that way of thinking becomes our blinkered tunnel vision of what it means to be blessed. That being blessed means only those kinds of things and can't possibly be, mean anything else. And that if you can't draw up that kind of list, then surely you've missed out on God's blessing. And of course, that way of thinking is further complicated by the fact that you can find plenty of people in this world who have no thought or care for God whatsoever, who also have all those things. And they might be smugly thinking to themselves, I did it all by myself. And compared to what Jesus says is the most important and meaningful definition of blessedness, as we thought about last week, all of that way of thinking often leads, leaves a lot to be desired and it often leaves people in a position of great, great quandary. Well, what do I have to thank God for? Poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meekness, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker. That's what it means and looks like to be blessed, says Jesus. And here's a really important thing about this. You see, you read through verses 3 to 9. You can live in any country. You can be from any culture. You can have any kind of background. You can have any kind of financial position. You can live in a country which affords you great liberty. Or you could live in a country under which you are uh, under a tyranny. You can be well educated or you can be illiterate. You can be any, anybody at all on the face of this planet. And when you read verses 3 to 9, you can consider yourself to be blessed in God through Christ. Your earthly circumstances do not matter at all. The Apostle Paul, in some of his letters, 
wrote to those who were masters and he wrote to those who were slaves. And if you will embrace Christ's definition of what it means to be blessed, well, you can really know that blessing. The same applies to good Bible teaching for the same reason if it's teaching the Bible. Good Bible teaching can, can be repeated anywhere to any people of any culture in any circumstance and it will be totally relevant and applicable to them if it is opening up to them the truths of God's word. Granted, certain phrases and illustrations might not translate well. They may need to be modified. But the actual body of teaching and its application, it's universal. We all have the same need. We all need the same Bible. We all need the same God and Saviour. You can open up the Bible, you can preach it in sophisticated and cosmopolitan Liverpool, if that's how you consider yourself. You could preach it in a refugee camp in the middle of the Middle East. Makes no difference whatsoever. And we should thank God for the comforts and the good things that we enjoy. But don't blinker yourself into thinking that that's what it means to be blessed. And that your life is absent of blessing if you don't have those things. Those seven virtues that are identified by Jesus in verses 3 to 9, they are worthy of your fullest attention and consideration and meditation before him. And if we haven't yet roused ourselves into the spiritual realm that Jesus is placing before us in those opening verses, then from verses 10 to 12, uh, Jesus kind of throws a spiritual bucket of cold water in our faces to wake us up to the things he's about to say next. This really should make you sit up and take notice. Those first seven marks of blessedness, they're all about the inner character of the Christian believer. But the next two blessed are you statements, they're very different because they speak of the opposition in the world and from the world that such blessed people can expect to see rising up against them. When they do, says Jesus, because he knows they will. And I want to speak under three headings. Here's the first. Persecution, it's certainty. It's certainty. You can't help but notice that Jesus is speaking here as if he expects believers to be on the receiving end of persecution. And that's exactly what he is doing because he knows they will be. L listen to what he says that's recorded in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Hence, here why it's talking about being persecuted for righteousness' sake and for the sake of Christ. The world has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world was love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's a strong word. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, 
they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. When Jesus said that the only way to follow him was by denying yourself and taking up your cross daily to follow him, he meant it. Because that is indeed the testimony of God's people. Read through your Bible. It's there everywhere. Moses was frequently oppressed by his own people, let alone others. So too Samuel. So too David. Elijah was opposed by Ahab and Jezebel. Ezekiel was encouraged by God not to be afraid with these words, though briars and thorns are with you and you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. Ezekiel knew what it was to to have all of these struggles. Jeremiah, he was beaten, locked in the stocks, thrown down a pit and eventually had his life taken from him simply for being a faithful servant and prophet of God. In chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus confronts the scribes and Pharisees. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Your own people sent by God to you and you killed them. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. That's Jesus speaking. From Abel to Zechariah, literally an A to Z of persecution against the Lord's people. Literally. And so we see Stephen martyred in the very early days of the Christian church. We hear the long list of physical punishments endured by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We read of the afflictions borne by the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they may obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world is not worthy. It's always been the way for God's people. In Acts 14, we read of the Apostle Paul strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. But come on, he says, this is the way of faith. Keep on. And John Blanchard, in his book that I mentioned, he points out that 
in the 28 chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, you'll find 56 references to the Lord's people being persecuted. And in all the long centuries, the Christian church has suffered persecution under the hand of the Roman emperors. Nero infamously covered Christians in pitch and burned them alive to light up his gardens at night. And that was actually quite kind and quick compared to some of the things that happened to others, the details of which I'll spare you. Many of you will know of the martyrs leading up to and during the Reformation in Europe. Christian men and women, church leaders, burned at the stake in the city of Oxford, of all places, a place of supposed wisdom. In recent years, communist regimes have slaughtered millions. 700,000 Armenians killed by the Ottoman army in 1915. Half a million Ugandans under Idi Amin in Africa. It continues in many parts of Africa and Asia today. Someone's estimated that in a typical year over the last century, as many as 300,000 Christians every year have lost their lives for the cause of Christ. And it all goes back to what Jesus said in John chapter 15. The world hated me long before it hated you. But it will hate you because it still hates me. And remember this. Jesus has never asked of any Christian something which he himself has not gone through. He was the man of sorrows, very acquainted with grief. Do you remember the words of 1 Peter in chapter 2? What credit is it when you are beaten for your faults if you take it patiently? If you've done something wrong and you're beaten, well, that's because you, you deserved it. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. It's not often we remind ourselves that that's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And he committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He committed himself to the one who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. And it's in this living for righteousness that the world will turn against us, that the world will turn against you. Blessed are you 
when you are persecuted. This really is one to get our heads around, isn't it? Blessed are you when you're persecuted. And what did we say about this blessedness last week? Is to have that peace and rest and comfort of the soul in persecution. Actually, many of the Lord's people will testify that they knew blessedness there more than anywhere. I think the church in the Western world, for the most part, still hasn't really got it. There are far too many who still promote Christianity as a cure-all, as a means of attaining worldly trappings of success, rather than promoting the godly hallmarks of sanctification, as exemplified in verses 3 to 9. The comforts of living in a prosperous and largely peaceful nation have in many ways become equated with what it means to be a Christian. But you won't find that anywhere in the Bible. Millions of saints now in glory would disagree with you. And God's word paints a very different picture. J.C. Ryle said this, persecution is like the goldsmith's mark on real silver and gold. It is one of the marks of a converted man or woman. It is one of the things that proves genuine your faith in Christ. Persecution, said Jesus, it's certain. And secondly, he talks about its nature. What is the nature of this persecution? Well, persecution will come about because, well, because of the way that Christian truth and Christian virtues and Christian principles always confront the philosophies and the ideologies of this sinful world. And they will also always do that head on. It always produces confrontation. Persecution comes about because those in the kingdom of God are convinced of a fixed, eternal, righteous, divinely revealed body of truth and moral code. Only that is the way we should be living. Only that is pleasing to God and nothing else. And it takes hold of our hearts. It takes hold of our minds. It's what reshapes our conscience. It's what remaps our lives. You can take your car to a garage. You can have, its, you have the engine remapped. They plug it into all kinds of sophisticated electronic stuff and they completely reprogram the computer that controls your car's engine. And they can completely change the way it functions. They can change all of its characteristics. That's what the Word of God and the Spirit of God does in the Christian. Completely remaps us changes us, transforms us, renews our minds and our thinking. We don't think like the world anymore. We don't think like we used to think. The world, on the other hand, well, the world just lurches from one opinion to another. 
the blind following the blind, those who shout loudest being listened to the most. If enough people say it, it must be true. Biblical truth clashes head on with the world. And so, in large degree, does Christian character. Poverty of spirit clashes with human pride. Mourning for sin. How can you even dare to call me sinful? Meekness. Pathetic. Strong. Assertive. That's the only way you'll ever get anywhere in the world. Righteousness. Speak of righteousness and sounds of laughter will fill the air as this hedonistic, self-gratifying world plunges itself into every form of immorality it can think of. Merciful? Peacemaking? You've just got to look out for number one and just get on with it. And when the truth even ever so slightly exposes sin for what it is, be prepared for the backlash. Because as much as the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are the rightful virtues of a Christian believer, the godly, the ungodly will always respond with reviling, horrified, offended accusations against God's people. Because that's what lies within their hearts. How dare you? And I want you to note carefully what it is that qualifies as persecution. Persecution is when the world turns against you for righteousness' sake. For the sake of Christ. It's not persecution if people are simply reacting against you because you are rude or argumentative. That's not this persecution. That's just you being rude and argumentative and rubbing people up the wrong way. One commentator helps us, I think, by putting it like this. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake suffer solely because they uphold God's standards of truth and justice and purity and refuse to compromise with paganism or bow the knee to the idols that men erect as substitutes for God. The persecution you will face will arise when you stand firm in the truth that is revealed in the Bible. And the more firm and clear the stand, the greater will be the persecution. Our, our natural sinful state is doing what seems right in our own eyes. That's what rules the day out there. Whatever seems right to you. This is the person I am. And if I'm not harming anyone else, what's your problem? People say. It's a key argument people will use. And who are you to judge? Who are you to tell me I'm wrong? In all of these kinds of things, can you see what the basic issue is? 
The basic issue is this. Authority. It's an issue of authority. Here's the question. Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide? The people who shout the loudest? Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide what is right, what is wrong? What is acceptable, what is unacceptable? What must be tolerated and what should not be tolerated? The world considers itself to be a law unto itself. We decide. And if we change our mind, well, we change our mind. And so the world thinks marriage can be redefined. Gender can be redefined. The roles of men and women can be redefined. Why on earth shouldn't we? Who is there to tell us otherwise? And that's the nub of the issue right there, you see. Who is there to tell us otherwise? Well, what did Paul say in Romans that we've looked at already? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, you see. What may be known of God is manifest in them. God has shown it to them. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. So much of that that's going on out there right now, that's, that's, that's it. That's the explanation. And they're worshipping the creature rather than the creator. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. See, it's a, it's a question of authority. Whose authority? The world has claimed authority for itself. The Bible says there is only one. And he is God. And so along comes the Christian who lives their life under the rule of God, whose life has been transformed by God's righteousness whose mind has been transformed by God's truth and upon whose heart the moral law of God has now been written. Is that you? A Christian whose entire being is now under the lordship of Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit is revealing more and more the rightness of God's truth. And you're becoming increasingly convinced of it day by day. The Christians under new management. There is an authority to decide all of these things. All of these things which the world supposes it has the liberty to decide. We'll read at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's the authority of Christ's teaching which really made people stand up and take notice. We've never heard a man speak with authority like this. Well, of course he did, because he is God. 
And the direct and unwavering message of the gospel as it exposes sin for what sin is, as it confronts this world with a higher authority, a higher authority than this world wants to accept, but a higher authority before which all, they, all men and women will stand. This is not what the world wants to hear. It's a question of authority. Who are you under this morning? Who's the Lord of your life? The claims of Christ, that he is God, that he died for their sins, that they must repent and trust in him. Well, you speak like that, be ready to be despised and rejected by men, just as Christ was. Because too many who claim to be Christians, very sadly, are giving in to the request of the world. Tone it down. Be more accommodating. Put your Bible away. Be less dogmatic. And then we'll all get along just fine. And so, just this week, the Methodists in the UK have announced that they are embracing same-sex marriage. They will conduct same-sex weddings. Cohabitation outside of marriage is all perfectly fine. And a huge majority voted for it. And the world will applaud. That gets in the news this week. Everyone will be saying, how wonderful. And God is grieving. And you should be too. It's in complete contradiction to everything that Jesus is teaching here, isn't it? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. So we might also ask, maybe, just something to think about, if we're not being persecuted, might that be a reflection of the degree of godliness in our lives? It's not being nice that provokes persecution. It's being godly in Christ that brings persecution. There must be more to us than merely being nice people. Although people should feel from us love and gentleness and grace, but the realities of God's truth and righteousness, the unflinching claims of Christ, must surely be present with each one of us and be working themselves out in our lives day by day. And here's another reason why you need to take it very seriously. Number three, it's benefits. It's benefits. What? How can there be any benefit in this? No, it's benefits. 
Paul, writing to the Thessalonian church, said this, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that in a moment. So that you became examples to all Macedonia and Achaia who believe. From you the word of God has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. We don't need to say anything. I wonder what Paul might have been writing about those believers if the word had not come to them in affliction. If it had been an easy believism. I wonder would Paul be writing in the same vein about the Thessalonian church I wonder just how crucial it is that Paul tells us that the word of the Lord came to them in much affliction and that that's what produced in them such faith. And look, much affliction with joy. Affliction with joy and the genuine, genuineness of their faith gave way to genuine witness. You see, persecution isn't a hindrance. Persecution isn't a hindrance to people being saved. Sometimes it actually works for the gospel, not against it. Persecution isn't a hindrance to Christians growing in grace and in the knowledge and love of Christ. Persecution isn't a hindrance that Christians and churches should be doing all that they can to try and avoid. Persecution isn't a hindrance that you should always be seeking to be delivered from. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. Philippians 1.29 To you... It has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. Friends, that's part of the package if you like. It's what it means to be a Christian. It's what it means to be walking after Christ. In a similar way that the Bible teaches that Jesus suffered and died for us, we must suffer for him. Rejoice. Be exceedingly glad. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means to be a believer. That's what it means to have a certain hope of where you will be when you die. Great will be your reward when you get there. When persecution and affliction comes, we are in that place on behalf of Christ. And if you only thought that he was supposed to make your life a bed of roses, you haven't even begun to understand what it means to be a Christian. You haven't even begun to understand. Persecution is because of your identity with Christ. Rejoice in it. The preacher John Wesley once wrote in his diary, I was honoured by having dirt 
stones, rotten eggs and pieces of dead cats thrown at me while I was preaching. Don't imagine for one moment that you read about the Wesleys and the Whitfields of, these wor- of the world and you, you read it with rose-tinted spectacles thinking, wasn't that wonderful? It was hard. They were oppressed. They were afflicted. They were persecuted. It's always been like this for the Lord's people. Even for God's prophets amongst his own people. What a privilege to be numbered with them. Persecution reminds us we are not of this world. It causes us to remember that all of this is just for a while. It's just temporary. And when we leave this world, all the glories of heaven await. And so that strengthens us to press on in hope and faith and hopefulness for the prize of the upward call, as Paul called it. All through the letters of the apostles, we're encouraged and exhorted to see how struggles and afflictions only draw us closer to the Lord and are a means of spiritual growth and grace to us. One of the men burned at the stake in England during the time of the Reformation was a man called John Bradford. He was martyred on the 1st of July, 1555. Another man was burned to death alongside him. John Bradford turned to him. This is what he said. Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a great supper with the Lord this night. Do you have that hope? Do you have that certainty in your own soul to be with Christ, which is far better? The one who calls us to walk this way walked there first. We're going to remember the cost that Christ paid for us. We're going to remember the one who suffered and died. And Graham will lead us in that in a moment. And let's just examine our own hearts before him as we prepare to do that. And let's just hear our Saviour's words as to what it is he's calling us to what it means to know and love and follow him with all the heart and soul and mind and strength. May this time as we share the cup and the bread together, may it be for us a time of real grace as we look again to our Saviour. We'll remain seated uh, a short Him will play through 
and then Graham will come and lead us as we partake of the supper together.
Well, we we come now to that time around the Lord's table. We've been reminded, haven't we, that there will be persecution. We've read of how that is for righteousness's sake and indeed for Christ's sake. And we've read and heard that we can rejoice and be glad because great is our reward to come in heaven. But how could that be? That I might be able to say with confidence that I have a reward to come in heaven, that I know it's true. How is it that Christians can stand and declare clearly and boldly that this life is not all there is, that there is indeed a higher throne than all this world has known? How is it that we could hear the words of the Apostle Paul who writes in Romans chapter 8 that there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit that dwells in you. Our Lord Jesus Christ knew that suffering. He knew that persecution. He knew that affliction, and it was for us. And as we've just sung, or heard sung, behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And so we remember, and that's what we're doing now. And we have that promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. Do you know that promise to be true for yourself? And so we share together in this bread of life and in a moment we'll drink together and remember his sacrifice and it's a sign of our bonds of peace as we're around the table of the king. And so this is what we're about to do. And if you're someone who knows that your sin has been born away, laid on Christ, then you're welcome to join with us now. But if you don't know this, if you don't know these things to be true in your own life, then please just let this pass. For the Bible asks us and instructs us to examine ourselves. And as we come now to take the the bread, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're here, seated around the table of the King. We thank you that for those in Christ, there is no condemnation because he was wounded for me. He was slain for us, and so now we remember. We thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, the only Savior, the Lamb of God, the fulfillment of the promises of old. And we remember with thankful hearts that great cost, that enormous sacrifice. And so bless us, Lord, we ask, as we eat and as we drink together. May we remember the work of the Son of God who gave himself so freely for us and yet at such great cost. So hear us, we pray, and may this be a means of grace to us now. Amen.
The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this together in remembrance of me. We'll eat. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup and drink together. Father, we thank you once again for the finished work and for the completed sacrifice. We thank you for the resurrection from the dead of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received such grace. We ask that you'd be gracious to us. We thank you and we ask for your blessing upon us. We pray as we leave this place, as we go out from here and go into another week, may you go before us and we ask that you'd watch over us and protect us and guide us. Thank you for what we've heard this morning. We pray for our time this evening when we can learn again from your word. We ask your blessing on that. And in all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.